0: First of all, it's an agency history. It's, It's an administrative history of an agency of the federal government. General Pershing was very proud of his soldiers. He was very proud of what they had done. And he was heart and soul committed to getting that story out. And one aspect of the story, of course, was to memorialize. As part of preservation, they're preserving remembrance. They're preserving memory. So there's a very large educational mission that the agency has always been dedicated uh, to doing. The soldiers to be properly remembered for what they contributed to the Allied victory in World War I, their deeds had to be noted. But superintendents over the years have told me some really compelling stories. Um, A a woman got down on the ground and literally Pawed at the ground, you know, that she was just so, so taken by actually getting to see this grave.
1: Uh, good day to you. Uh, this is Joey Cochran with uh, the Conference on Faith and History. And uh, I have the privilege today of having a conversation with Dr. Thomas Connor. Uh, who was the William P. Harris Professor of Military History at Hillsdale College, and he recently retired in 2020. But for 40 years, uh, he made nearly annual visits to our country's overseas war memorials, often with groups of touring students. And he's the author of The War and Remembrance, the story of the American Battle Monuments Commission, which is the uh, title of the book under which we are having our conversation today for our uh, virtual coffee with the Conference on Faith and History. And so, Dr. Connor, uh, we're really grateful uh, at the Conference on Faith and History that you were able to make some time for us uh, for this conversation today. Uh, The first thing that I would just like to ask you is uh, what inspired your research interest in the American Battle Monuments Commission and its history.
0: Well first of all it's great to be with you Joey and uh, greetings to your audience as well. Um, My interest in the American Battle Monuments Commission dates from uh, my graduate school years at the University of North Carolina all the way back into the late 1970s. Uh, I was a research assistant or teaching assistant excuse me for the military historian at North Carolina, a gentleman by the name of James Luzzi. And he was very popular and he perfected the art of doing field trips to Civil War sites originally, but he decided in the late 70s, he wanted to start taking students to World War I and World War II battle sites in Europe. So I had just come back from France my research year for my dissertation and I had made my initial visit to the Normandy Cemetery. And uh, so he asked me to go along as one of his graduate assistants. So to make a long story short, um, we visited five or six cemeteries, World War I and World War II cemeteries in the uh, spring of 1979. And because I was sort of put in charge of arranging those visits, I got to know personnel in the European office of the American Battle Monuments Commission and also the uh, superintendents uh, at the various cemeteries and found them to be just an amazing collection of people. Many of them were veterans, um, deeply committed to telling the story of America's wars. And they were obviously also deeply committed to being custodians of these hallowed sites abroad. So, and seeing the sites themselves, how beautiful they were, how meticulously maintained they were, just drew me in you might say. And it's been a long time, I mean, 40 years from first visit to publication of the book. But um, the, uh, the interest in the book sort of stemmed from my connection with Victor Davis Hanson, a very well-known military historian out of Stanford and the Hoover Institute. And uh, he was a member of the American Battle Monuments Commission, President George W. Bush, appointed him to that in 2008. And I just sort of casually said to Victor one time, well, has anybody ever, I asked him, has anybody ever done a history of the ABMC and published it? He said, no, not that he knew of. I said, well, what do you think would be the response if I were to undertake that? And he said, by all means. And, and I did and very, very happy to have accomplished that particular mission. And um, I hope I'm still not done Visiting those those sites because they truly are special.
1: Fantastic. So tell me a little bit more about the book itself, how it's structured, uh, what's the what's the historical narrative of it, and uh, what's what's the general historical argument of the book.
0: Well, I've already sort of given you a, a big hint as to what the argument is that. It, it, first of all, it's an agency history. It's, it's an administrative history of an agency of the federal government. And I've done it in narrative form. It's, so the chapters are chronological. Uh, they begin with the immediate aftermath of the First World War, when particularly General Pershing, who was one of the key figures uh, in the whole story of the ABMC, he was the first chairman uh, of the agency and held that position until his death in 1948, which was 25 years into the history of the agency itself. General Pershing was very proud of his soldiers. He was very proud of what they had done, and he was heart and soul committed to getting that story out. And one aspect of the story, of course, was to memorialize the service and, as it were, uh, for tens of thousands, the sacrifice of the soldiers. So there were uh, eight cemeteries created at the end of World War One, and and nearly a dozen monuments, and uh, so the creation of the cemeteries, choosing the sites, actual issues of art, artistic uh, import. Pershing was very hands-on um, with the creation of the uh, the sites, and then uh, we get to World War Two. There's a whole chapter on the dedication of the uh, cemetery's formal dedication, which all of which happened in 1937, which turned out to be 20 years after the uh, original entry of the United States into World War I, dating back to 1917. The chapter I enjoyed writing the most was the story of the monuments, how they fared during the Second World War, because almost all of the World War I monuments and cemeteries were in France and Belgium. And that was occupied territory. And and when I say France, I mean Northern France. And when the German army um, won the campaign in 1940 and occupied all of Belgium and all of Northern France, all of those sites were suddenly in German occupied territory. Turns out they all fared quite well the Germans never undertook any kind of a concerted effort to vandalize or they, they actually, in the true military sense, showed them honor and respect, with a few exceptions that are barely notable, to be honest with you. But then, of course, after the Second World War, there were 14 new cemeteries created because the act of burial of the dead and building monuments had to be done all over again. And as it turns out, George C. Marshall was the second chairman of the ABMC, and he'd served as Army Chief of Staff during the Second World War, one of the greatest soldiers. He was one of the five or six uh, generals of the Army uh, ever in the history of the United States Army. And he was the chairman and lent not only his expertise, but also his, his heart to the enterprise because he... Loved the American GIs and wanted to see them remembered in in the right way. And I, I, if if the press, if my publisher had wanted more, and been willing to allow me more space, I would have carried the story probably an extra twenty five years to the mid nineteen eighties, which would have been the end of General Mark Clark's chairmanship, the third and fourth chairman the ABMC were both World War II generals as well. Jacob Devers, uh, during the 1960s, uh, under President, uh, Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. And then Mark Clark uh, served until his death in 1984. But uh, I stopped it in 1960 and just kind of wrote an epilogue for the, the rest of the story, as it were. But the basic theme of the book is how beautifully the agency has fulfilled its mission, how beautifully remembered the soldiers are, those who are lying in the cemeteries especially, and uh, how beautifully created and designed the monuments have been. And there's another very important and very interesting aspect of the story, Joey, that I was very eager to um, get into print. That's the relationship between the host nationals, particularly the Frenchmen and the Belgians and the Dutch and the Italians who live close to these sites, how reverently uh, they participate in the ongoing life of, of these sites. And we Americans, particularly with regard to the French, I think our knee-jerk reaction is, well, the French don't like us, they're always irritated with us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to these World War One and World War II sites, it's very very different and uh i have never experienced hospitality as warm as the hospitality that is shown to our countrymen uh particularly in normandy but also you know normandy is the abmc site that most americans if they're going to visit one that's the one they see but it's true of the other couple dozen of these sites as well and that was that was a part of the story I wanted to get out. I, I was hoping that the book would help to familiarize Americans with the existence and the work of this agency and also instill a certain pride um, in it. It's not often that we take pride in the work of our government agencies, perhaps not like we should, but uh, this one is, is one that I think stands
1: apart. Yeah, I think I, I completely agree with you about that. And I, I recall as I reflect back on on reading through the introduction of your book, uh, some pretty sensational things that were said or that you reported were being said by uh, curators and, and people who, who worked at these sites in other countries that they, in some sense, felt like American citizens. Um, mm-hmm. And and I, I just, I found that very fascinating and interesting that there was this, you um, Loyalty, and and reverence, and in a sense, feeling that the American soil had in some way extended itself at these memorial sites.
0: Yes, that, that's that's certainly true, and I I think I know uh, which particular um, utterance that I reported that you have in mind. There was one of the uh, cemetery associates at the Netherlands Cemetery said of the people in that part of extreme Southeast Netherlands. It's in the Maastricht appendix is where our, our cemetery where well, so these people think they're Americans. and uh, um, It's great, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful tribute, um, particularly to the guys who are forever going to rest in that soil, the soil of, of that country. But it's, it's a wonderful tribute to uh, the, uh, our country that the Dutch would continue to feel such gratitude to us. You know, a few years back, uh, the uh, uh, 75th anniversary year for the end of World War II, the King of Holland came over here. He and his wife, Willem Alexander is his name. And he came to both the United States and Canada on a gratitude tour, explicitly, that's what he called it. And I wish that had gotten more publicity because He meant it. He meant it. I mean, he's from a lineage. People all the way back to Queen Wilhelmina, who was sent packing by the Germans when they invaded in 1940. So the Dutch remember us still still to this day as their liberators. You know, the American army and and the British army were the ones who gave them their country back. And the cemeteries, well, there's one cemetery on Dutch soil, but it is an ongoing reminder of all that. And there's great depth of feeling attached to it.
1: Fascinating. So what are some of the functions that uh, ABMC and its monuments fulfilled for American citizens during the interwar period, during the post-World War II period as well?
0: Well, during the interwar period, of course, their mission was creating the sites. And I, I devoted three chapters of the book, almost half the book, to uh to that part of the story. But once the sites were created, then uh, the principal mission of the agency became preservation. And uh, that can be broadly construed, the the most down to earth manifestation of uh, preservation is ongoing maintenance, keeping the grass cut, keeping the bushes trimmed and whatnot. But they do an exquisite job of that. And of course, most of the people who work for the ABMC are foreign nationals. Uh, The maintenance work, the the supervisors, the maintenance engineers, they're Frenchmen for the French cemeteries, Dutch for the Dutch cemetery, so forth and so on. They're under American supervision, but they put themselves into that job. So maintenance preservation, uh, I think most in the agency would say that's their principal job. But As part of preservation, they're preserving remembrance, they're preserving memory. So there's a very large educational mission that the agency has always been dedicated uh, to doing. All the way back to General Pershing's time, as, as I think I alluded to earlier, he was very concerned that for the soldiers to be properly remembered, for what they contributed to the Allied victory in World War I, their deeds had to be noted and and memory of the deeds had to be preserved. So there are maps, for example, and there are plaques. Uh, These were original parts of the World War I sites. And that kind of thing, that kind of practice has only been expanded uh, into our own time uh, so, that anybody who visits, say, the Normandy Cemetery today, not only gets to see the grave sites and the memorial that's part of the cemetery, but they get to visit a very well done and greatly expanded visitor center with exhibitions and um, display panels and uh, videos. And, you know, it's really a, a complete experience because the the thinking has been um, and that visitor center by the way by the way dates from 2007 it's fairly new but a number of the other cemeteries and even some of the monuments have visitor centers just created in the last 10 or 15 years to do precisely what I just outlined um, to explain the deeds of the American soldiers so that they might be more fully and properly honored and
1: so there's there's a, a kind of a, a convergence of the material history that's there with with developments of of almost like a, a as a visitor center mm-hmm. a museum-like historical uh experience for for learning too
0: exactly exactly well. so it, it kind of tickled me joey and, and i i i mean no disparagement at all to uh the people at the agency. But when they first started talking about historical interpretation, they they call these uh, visitor centers, they're interpretive centers. To me, they're museums, but their purpose is to interpret the actions and the deeds of the soldiers who are commemorated in the cemeteries to uh, a contemporary audience they were very proud of of all this, the move they were making and and justifiably so. But to me, that's just an extension and an expansion of the educational mission that dates all the way back to General Pershing, that they really haven't rediscovered the wheel. They've just discovered new ways of delivering um, that message to a contemporary audience. They've updated it and Spruced it up, and they, they have a wonderful website too. The ABMC does it's www.abmc.gov. G-O-V. And I would recommend that to all of your um, followers as well because uh, it's very well done. It's very well done.
1: Excellent. Uh, there, and, as I think about uh, the experience for American citizens who come to visit these sites. There's a there's a very different experience for somebody who has maybe an intense relational connection mm-hmm. to the site like they lost a loved one or an ancestor on that battlefield or or is perhaps residing there versus those who just are are tourists that have come from the United States to France and are visiting Normandy or or to any of these other Different sites. Um, what, um, what are, what is like one of the most intense or powerful stories of a loved one that shows up in in your work in your history?
0: Well, I I did not witness um, this particular incident, but superintendents over the years have told me some really compelling stories. Um, in, in answer to the, the point that you've, you've just raised of, of relatives um, who have visited the cemeteries and perhaps um, seen the grave of a sibling or um, even a parent, a father or a, a, an uncle, whatever, for the first time. Literally, um, this was a story at a, at a World War I cemetery years ago Uh, I mean, when I first started visiting, there were still next of kin of World War I dead who were buried in the cemeteries who were able to to make the trip. And and a a woman got down on the ground and and literally pawed at the ground, you know, that she was just so so taken by actually getting to see this grave uh, for the first time. Uh, I related a, a story of uh, another uh, woman. This was a sister of a world, one of the World War II dead. I related this in the introduction of the book. Um, it was at the Henri Chapelle Cemetery where there are a lot of uh, dead from the Battle of the Bulge, for example, uh, buried there. And this sister uh, came. This was, uh, I was told this story in 2010. So this is quite a bit more recent But uh, she visited the grave of her brother for the first time. So you could say that she hadn't been united with her brother in, well, let's do the math, 65 years
1: Uh from
0: 1945 to 2010. And she wrote a note to him and taped it to his headstone. And then walked away, just left, left the note there. The superintendent retrieved it and uh, brought it back to the office, put it in a, a plastic bag and told me that he was determined to save it for the family if any subsequent relatives uh, come over. Because if he'd left it where it was, the, the weather would have you know caused it to disappear. But I thought I was very moved by, by that. and uh, that she would would do such a thing. I mean, she must have felt that there was some spiritual connection with her dead brother in that moment. And there are occasions, there are incidents of that sort that happen, I'm sure, all the time. There aren't so many next of kin anymore, even to the World War II veterans now, but the superintendents are very well trained to deal with people who still are quite grief-stricken when they come to uh, yeah. visit. So others are more casual, I mean you, you're you right, They're, they want to visit, they want to pay homage, but they don't necessarily have an emotional connection of that same sort.
1: So when you take students on trips to battle monuments or, or do guides, guided tours, yourself what are some of the most important historical insights you share with the people that you're you're guiding
0: well from the earliest visits I've made to these sites with students I remember a conversation with Jim Luzzi um he he was I think quite consciously mentoring me because I was the up-and-comer he was the well-established uh professor but uh he, he was talking about instant gratification you know one of the one of the challenges that teachers always have is to make their subject interesting enough to evoke a kind of ongoing engagement you know with their students sometimes we succeed at that sometimes less so but he said when you're on one of those sites there's instant gratification I mean you can see The students uh, react. It's almost impossible not to be moved, to know that you're standing on ground that American GIs literally ran across. I'm I'm referring to the Normandy Cemetery now, but it's true of many other cemeteries too, because one of the conscious moves that the ABMC made in citing these cemeteries and the monuments too, was to put them on the actual battlefields. So, the Normandy Cemetery is on flat land, but it's on a bluff above Omaha Beach. And once the American soldiers on June 6, 1944, finally got through the German fortifications and up the bluffs and into uh, open field running, you might say they literally crossed the ground where the cemetery is located. And just knowing that, um, as I say, it's almost impossible not to be to be moved. Uh, but the students, um, I I've never been impressed at all. I mean, I've never really noticed much boredom. Let's say when when students are actually on the ground, so to speak, and oftentimes they they come up with just wonderful insights. Um, it's as if they really can feel, because many of them are like 18 years old, 19, 20, if you're talking about college. But that's how old a lot of these GIs were yeah. uh, when, when they uh, you know, were um, sometimes conscripted into the service, sometimes volunteered. But so they, they immediately relate to that. These guys were same stage of life that I am. And of course, then you see that a considerable portion of them had their lives cut short because you're looking at their headstones. And uh, the students are, are very, very sensitive to just what one would think and, and want them to be sensitive to because I think the overpower the, the overpowering message of these sites is the record of sacrifice that generations, multiple generations of Americans, have been willing to make in the defense of freedom. And there's a particular, particularly powerful line in the video. At the Normandy Visitor Center, it's a Frenchman, being interviewed. He's a gray head, um, but uh, he. Uh, and he recalls, I don't know whether he recalls because he was alive in 1944, or this is something that's come down to him. But in any case, he said, one of the things that's always impressed me, he said is that these guys who are in the cemetery, they came from thousands of miles away to fight, essentially to drive the enemy off of our soil. And they'd never even met us before. You know, they're, they're fighting and willing to die for the freedom of people that they'd never even met. And that, Mm. that reality still resonates too. And motivates, uh, even the, the most contemporary generation of our soldiers.
1: Fascinating. One of the, uh, things that I, I noted, uh, in your study is that, um, you you talked about how there's somewhat of a regularity of the components that each of these sites have as far as the design and the structure Mm -hmm. and and i i don't know if i'm mistaken but this is also my sense that i get is that uh well i've been to arlington cemetery Mm -hmm. i've also seen film of these other sites and at arlington cemetery you can kind of see a, a higher the um the material cultural display of maybe the hierarchy of office with gravestones mm-hmm. and such um but when you go to these other ones is there more of like a democratization of the soldiers uh, as far as the markers go what, what are some of the things that are distinctive um and and can you even talk briefly a little bit about like the design plan of these memorials and and what is part of that consistency that you see at all of them and, and the meaning behind it?
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd love that's a great question. Um, first thing to say is all of the ABMC cemeteries with one exception, that is is a veteran cemetery uh, by Clark, what used to be Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. That's that's a, that's a, quite an exception. Uh, It's become part of the American Battle Monuments Commission responsibility to maintain it, but none of the other cemeteries are are like that. In Clark Air Force Base, they'll still add uh, burials to the cemetery. But the original ABMC site, the World War I and the World War II cemeteries were designed all at once. And they were designed with a specific number in mind. They're closed cemeteries now um, when, when remains are found, as they still are um, in the World War I and World War II regions, if the family consents, the agency still will add uh, a burial plot to a cemetery, but that's quite rare as well. But uniformity was the objective, um, and, and your, your use of the term democratization is exactly that, that was right on the money, Joey, because in Arlington, yes, there are large portions of Arlington where you do see uniformity, you know, the sort of standard government issue headstone. There, it's uh, very different, however, from the look that one sees in the overseas cemeteries. The overseas cemeteries, the headstones are Christian crosses or Jewish stars of David, one or the other. In Arlington, yes, there are large portions where you, you have basically the, the it's a small block headstone, basically square. And uh, well, some are square, then you also have, um, you know, sort of a, a curved top. I think General Pershing actually lies in, in a portion of Arlington where his, his headstone is utterly indistinguishable from people of other ranks. I mean, you can make an argument, Pershing was the highest ranking soldier in the American army in its whole history. He's the equivalent of a six-star general, and George Washington was given that rank, general of the armies, not army, but armies, plural, in 1976. Obviously, posthumously, it was the bicentennial year. Pershing got it in 1919, and he's the only soldier, whoever had that rank when he was alive. But there he lies in Arlington amidst anything from privates all the way up. But there are a lot of what we might call private personal monuments in Arlington that, yes, they they are wonderful and appropriate tributes to the person in question, but they definitely interrupt the uniformity. Um, In the overseas cemeteries, and this is all by design, the headstones are one of two types everywhere and it's, it's white marble on green grass. That's basically the look. And it's a stunning, it's an absolutely stunning look. One of the most interesting little controversies um, that, pres- that General Pershing actually had to solve and the commission as well and ultimately Congress too in the 1920s was what shape would the headstones take? And uh, there were some who thought, well, the overseas cemeteries should be little Arlington's. They should look just like Arlington, particularly for the the ordinary soldier buried in uh, irrespective of of rank. And um, Pershing decided because he got a lot of letters from Soldiers uh, and and families also who had had soldiers buried in temporary cemeteries where there was a wooden cross or a Jewish star in the temporary cemetery. The families did not want to see that change. So he put pressure on the commission, the commission put pressure on Congress, and the decision was made that these religious symbols would prevail in the cemeteries. But um, there are very famous. Uh, spots in the various cemeteries where a general's lying next to a private. There's no distinction of of rank. And interestingly also, Joey, this gets us into a little more controversial subject, but um, black soldiers buried next to white soldiers. And it's particularly interesting to know that this was a conscious decision made in the aftermath of World War I when the army was still racially segregated, but democratization of the dead prevailed.
1: That's fascinating, and, and of course at all of these sites there's also unknown soldiers that are remembered as well in some sort of way, how, how is that typically handled?
0: Yes, it just uh, there's an inscription on the grave, um, well originally um, the inscription on the unknowns in the World War I cemeteries were the same inscription that was on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which was dedicated in 1921. The, the original Unknown Soldier was a world one of the World War One dead. And I think it's something like here lies in honored glory, an American soldier known but to God. It was a, the inscription was changed at the end of World War II to read, here lies an honored glory, a comrade in arms, known but to God. That was a little more inclusive. Uh, Even back in the 1950s, there was that desire to be just a a little bit more inclusive with the reference. But um, as for, presumably, if it could be discovered that the dead was a Jewish soldier. The headstone with the inscription of an unknown would be in the shape of a star of David. But I've also been told that, uh, they just kind of randomly, they in, in determining whether an unknown would get a Christian cross or a Jewish star, they just did mathematical. What's the overall proportion of Jewish soldiers to, um, non-Jewish soldiers in the cemetery and they randomly assigned them. So it's conceivable that there might have been some mismatching done in terms of the actual religious heritage of the soldier, but in, in an unknown case, yeah, that's the best they could do, presumably.
1: Yeah. So, so you recently completed uh, a long teaching career at Hillsdale College and was honored to give the commencement address in 2020 what are some suggestions you have for early career professors as they seek to professionally flourish in their teaching context?
0: Um, yeah, that was, that was one of the, uh, questions that you, uh, shared with me earlier that, that caused me to, to think hardest and, and most deeply. And I'm not sure I still have a good answer uh, to it. First of all, um, I'll just be autobiographical quickly. Um, I joined the Hillsdale faculty in 1983 and with my freshly minted PhD out of the University of North Carolina. And Hillsdale across the whole span of years that I've been there has, has always been and for long before that as well. And I suspect long into the future. We've always considered ourselves primarily a teaching college So I got tenured at Hillsdale because my teaching met the standard. The book about which uh, we've been talking and and to which you made reference in in the introduction, that's the only book I ever published. And uh, so I was lucky. And I never, even in graduate school, I mean, I went to a top 20 graduate program and I was very proud of the dissertation I did and I had aspirations at one time of getting that published. At a lot of places I would have had to get that published or I would not have held my position. But Hillsdale was not such a place 40 or 35 years ago. It's becoming more of a place like that today. Uh, The expectations of faculty members, are uh, in in the, the arena of scholarship, are are higher and, and a little more a little more thorough going, let's say. So, I would I would say to a young person beginning his or her career right now, first of all, you need to know what your particular department is going to require of you, and those requirements vary, but uh, one can't go wrong taking advantage of the opportunities to publish, the opportunities to do research um, and and getting either articles or or books out of them. But um, some schools will emphasize teaching over scholarship. Others will emphasize scholarship over teaching. And hopefully the person in question will be well matched with his or her institution so that that those demands will not be unduly onerous. And I that's that's one of the, the unknowables, I guess, in my own experience. I don't know whether I ever could have thrived at a place, at a research university, for example, that would have required me to come out with a book every five or six years. Thrive to the same degree that I think I thrived at at Hillsdale. So, but it's it's a the other reality, Joey, is that the job market for newly minted PhDs today is just abysmal. And it's, it's very, very sad, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a mark of what is going on in American higher education. That's a subject perhaps for another, another interview. But it's, to me, it's, it's not encouraging because history happens to be one of the subjects, I think, that's being de-emphasized at many, many places, not at Hillsdale to be sure, but, um, and the other thing about history is that it's being openly disparaged. And I mean, our national history and, uh, and by educators uh, at all levels as best I can tell. And that's a very disturbing situation. So the, the word often used is that history is being weaponized. Now, and it's very, very regrettable to the degree that that may be true. It's very regrettable,
1: so. And that, I guess that taps into the difference between um, maybe a historicized view of history versus a progressive view of history.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I, yes, I'm sure that's true, but I, my department chairman uh, likes to say uh, we teach as we've been taught. Mm-hmm. And looking back as I've been doing more and more and more as I'm retired now, and you know my whole career is basically in the rearview mirror, but i uh, I asked myself, well, how, how did I manage to do it the way I did it? And I think it's because I'm very much a chip off the block of my own teachers. And I'm very proud to say that because I had superb teachers, they really date all the way back to elementary school. I mean, I've never had a teacher who did anything but make me more excited about studying and knowing history and ultimately being able to present it to generation after generation of of college students. So, but uh, uh, I, to me, Joey, I've I've not done anything outstanding, anything extraordinary at all. I've just done what I always hoped to do and done what I experienced in my student days at the hands of my own teachers. I've tried to be the same kind of teacher to my own students as my own teachers were to me.
1: So yeah, that's a that's a great way to continue to pass on a legacy. And, and to demonstrate that mentoring really matters. And, and it's sometimes, uh, not sometimes, I, I think the mentoring or the teaching component uh, always has a, um, a more powerful uh, imprint on students than what books my prof published. And, yeah,
0: no, I. And I that, have-
1: that may that may get matriculation to a point of like, this professor has produced this kind of material and it's influential, um, but it's not going to keep students in departments and, mm-hmm. and get them degrees and, grad, and graduate them. So. Yeah.
0: No, I, I, I happen to believe that as well. Another thing my department chairman likes to say, we're teaching all the time. We're yeah. teaching all the time. And uh, especially the small campus, Uh, You're running into your students all the time in various settings. And that's the kind of experience I had at Hillsdale. And I will always consider myself extremely fortunate to have been in a place like this and and been able to do what I've done, including the travel. And ultimately, even when I finally um, got off the nines, you might say, uh, scholarship and publication. So.
1: Yeah, and, and it's a huge testimony, stay, staying put in one uh, setting for so long, uh, because there's this, I guess, urge or desire to get to a particular place or mm. or context, but um, there's something very valuable in, in being where you were set up to be for a whole career that's that's pretty yeah exciting.
0: no that that certainly describes my situation i mean i have no you know i have no problem certainly with those who want to climb the ladder um and and who earn new positions and better positions presumably with each change because of what they have accomplished uh, in the world of scholarship but i just was never inclined to uh to uh to leave here and I, I guess what you could say about my experience here, Joey, is that the college has gotten better and better. I didn't—I didn't have to take a new job to get to a better place. but the, the place where I was uh, has, you know, really um, achieved great things, great made great progress um, in terms of the quality of student and the quality of faculty member it's attracted over the last 40 years, and hopefully that'll.
1: Well, Dr. Connor, thank you so much for taking time uh, with the Conference on Faith and History with myself today to share about your book. And, uh, and we're just very grateful for you once again. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I'm grateful for the opportunity,
1: Joey. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.